I'm going to be pre- preaching from the first seven verses. Um, yeah, I find this message really has to do with perspective and our perspective on who we are and our future. And yeah, this is encouraging, I think, for anybody, well, for all believers, we should be encouraged by this, but it's encouraging specifically, I think, to people who are hurting or struggling, whether you're struggling with health or loss or change or anything like that. I specifically don't like change at all. My dad was always, has always told me, Gabe, you don't like change, because every time we moved to a different house, a different church, or I lost friends or anything, I always was upset. And in fact, I could even be upset over the fact my mom wanted to move the furniture for the 14th time. Um, but I've never liked change, and I've had quite a bit of change this year, and this passage keeps coming back to me. And I think it's God showing me where my perspective needs to be. But if you will, turn to 1 Peter, and we're going to read all, down to, all the way down to verse 7 of chapter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations." that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it is tested or tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for who you have called us to be and for the inheritance you're giving us. I pray that you would, Lord, allow us to all see that and be with me and help me to speak clearly for your glory. And I just ask that you would be with us this afternoon. In your name I pray, amen. So I think oftentimes when you read the Bible, introductions kind of go unnoticed. We read them and we understand it's okay. This is a apostle or disciple who lived a long time ago and he wrote and signified certain churches and he gave them some kind of blessing. Um, But, you know, every word in the Bible is intentional. All of it is theopneustos, which means God breathed as we read and First or second, Timothy or Thessalonians, can't remember. But every word's intentional. And in this letter, Peter's introduction, he says he's writing to strangers. And we may look over that thing, it's just kind of Christian lingo, but it actually has significant meaning for the rest of the passage. Um, the idea of strangers is he's writing to believers, people who don't belong to the earth. The Greek word for strangers could also be understood as sojourners or exile or exiles, but Peter gives them this title for a purpose. You know, at this time, church was going under persecution from Caesar Nero. Rome had been set on fire, and according to history, it's likely Nero just wanted to rebuild a whole bunch of stuff. So he burnt down Rome, blamed it on the Christians. Now Christians are being persecuted. And if you've studied any of the persecution that Nero uh, inflicted upon Christians, it was brutal. And Peter's reminding them, you're not of this world. You belong somewhere else. And it's similar to what Paul writes in Hebrews 11:13, 13, talking about all those people who had 
suffered or gone through many trials throughout the Old Testament, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. You know, Peter's telling them the same things. He says, you're strangers to this earth. You're pilgrims on this earth. You don't belong here. But even though we don't belong here, there is a place we do belong. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. Jesus, in his response to Pilate in John 18, 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Peter wants his readers to remember that they belong to a better life than the one they're living. He would agree with Paul when Paul was defending the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. He says, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. Yeah, I work at a, a Christian bookstore called Mardell. We're actually a Christian store in general because we sell Christian music, video, t-shirts, gifts, but main, our main focus is books and Bibles. And actually, Thinking of, I just bought this Bible from them yesterday because I need a smaller Bible to fit my tabs in. Just keep in mind, if you have a Bible, read it, because I see how many Bibles we sell almost every day, every week, and it seems to me that very few people are actually reading this Bible. So I don't know what happens to those Bibles. I just know not very many people read them, but we get a lot of them sold. So read your Bible. But, you know, where I work, um, we have opportunity to interact with Christian people, or at least quote Christian people, because we get a lot of people who, you know, you can kind of tell they claim to walk with Christ, but they really don't. And we deal with a lot of broken people who come in there. Um, we had a lady come in recently, and she was not healthy at all. She could hardly walk. She just kind of stammered around. She had some kind of spinal disorder where her muscles were tight, and she apparently used to be former figure skater and had hit her head so many times on the ice, she now is on the autism spectrum. Her life was very difficult and still is. And worst of all, she has been influenced pretty much all her life under the teaching of Joel Olstein and Joyce Myers, which if you don't know anything about them, they're basically going to tell you that God wants you to be prosperous and happy. And um, she looked at them, and she looked at her own life, and she did not understand what the difference was. Why, was. why were so many other people that she saw platformed up there having a successful life, and she was so miserable? And her reasoning was, which it was coincidental, I had just been reading J.A. Packer's book, Knowing God, which is a great book. Um, but he talked about, if you have this perspective that God wants you to be happy, he said, oh, when things don't go right, the only explanation you can find is I may not have enough faith. And so she came in here wanting some kind of book to tell her how to have enough faith so she could get out of the terrible life she was experiencing to be like all the people she'd seen platform through those ministries, which I can tell you those ministries have, or I'm not even going to call them ministries, those organizations have many people they platform many followers the platform. None of them are going to be the people like her who are following them but finding no substance in the message. These people are ruining people's lives. So just giving them a false message that they have life, they have hope in this life. And when people's lives break down, they're miserable. Um, the lady's name was Helen, by the way, and if you keep her in your prayers, we gave her, well, she bought a lot of literature, um, and we just hope that she 
found some good resources, and we'll read them and really find out what true faith is. But as Paul was saying in that, he says, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. The only thing we had to live for was this life. We'd be miserable because this life isn't exactly ideal. Um, We have pain. We have disappointment. Um, We'll stub our toes, as has been mentioned more than once recently. Um, You know, but if we follow Christ, we're also not only going to pain suffering, we're promised to a degree that the world is going to hate us because we're going to be opposing the world. That's why we're called strangers. That's why Paul writes, if in this life only, we're going to be miserable. But we have hope beyond this life. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, we read, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perisheth, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. So we need to remember who we are. We are not people of this world. We are strangers to this world, but we are children of God. We belong to a heavenly kingdom. And if we keep this in mind, it will set the stage for our life because what you believe is what you're going to act upon. And if you remember and you believe who you are, and you believe that you're going to reign in eternity, you're going to live in such a way that reflects that. Well, the next thing we look at is double-sided paper. I'm not used to working with it. All right, next thing we're going to look at is, in verse 2, he says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he's actually mentioning a work of the Trinity here. We see the Father, we see the Spirit, and we see the Son. And I think the main focus here is sanctification. Um, It says that we are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and are sanctified by the Spirit. The sanctify means to consecrate. The definition of consecrate is to make something sacred. So Christ makes us sacred for his purposes, but we're not sacred because we're anything of ourselves. Without Christ, we're sinful wretches and are part of a broken world. But as Romans 5, 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So originally we belong to this world, but Christ died for us. He sanctifies us. He sets us apart so that we are no longer of this world. We are safe from our sinfulness, consecrated to God for obedience the Spirit's work of sanctification leads us to obedience. As you're sanctified, you are renewed. That's what Paul was talking about earlier. We are renewed day by day. And the sprinkling of blood here is a reference to the symbolic sealing of the covenant practiced of the priest. You know, they were given a covenant of obedience. Christ's blood is much in the same way. Christ's blood not only redeems us, but it brings us into a covenant of obedience with God. This obedience is not what saves us. Nobody is saved by works, by doing enough. But the obedience is a result of our salvation. In Ephesians 2, 18, we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So knowing you are saved, do not grow complacent. God has saved you for works he's prepared for you. Let your knowledge of salvation compel you and drive you to live your life knowing there are things God has prepared for me. There are good works God has prepared for me. And because of the covenant, through Christ's blood, I'm called to live obediently so I can do these good works for Christ. And next in verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, after stating our salvation, Peter moves on and gives us doxology, blessing God in honor of God, specifically in honor of God's abundant mercy. God's mercy is described as abundant or great all throughout Scripture. I'll read a number of verses in Psalm 51, 1. We read, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. If you were in Sunday school, my dad brought up the word hesed, which is Greek word. It's very expansive. And when you see loving kindness in Scripture, that's generally the word because it's such a rich word. Sometimes it's tender mercy. Sometimes it's loving kindness. But according to thy loving kindness... According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 69, verse 16. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Again, take a drink. My mouth gets so dry, especially this time of year. Anyways, back to Psalm. Uh, we have Psalm 119, 156. Greater thy tender mercies, O Lord. Quicken me according to thy judgments. Psalm 145, 9. Psalms are so worshipful. You're going to read a lot about the greatness of God and his mercy. But it says, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Think about that one for a second. Over all his works, we see God's mercy. We deserve to be in hell right now, but the fact that we're able to see or experience anything in this life shows his, it's, it's smothered in his mercy because we don't deserve any of it. Every breath we have is a mercy from God. And then in Daniel 9, we read, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness. So we understand through scripture, God's mercy is great. It's abundant. It's everywhere. And there are two reasons God's mercy is great. The first reason is because God is great. God is by nature awesome and great. And so everything that flows from God is going to be great. You know, I think we don't, I don't just think it, I know, we don't meditate on the greatness of God or the greatness of his mercy enough. And we should constantly be meditating and thinking about how great our God is. Because he is great, not only does scripture say to meditate, to consider and to think about your God, but the more we do so, the more we realize how great of a God we serve and how loving and just fantastic it was for him to send his son down to die for us. And I think some people will give the argument saying, well, God is infinite, so it's kind of a waste to try to think about him. Because you're never going to be able to think about God to the fullest extent. You're never going to know him fully. And, um, you know, I think if you have the goal of, well, I want to know all about God, that there is to know, well, God's infinite. So, yeah, you're going to fail in that. But you can know all about God, and you can continue to learn about him, and it's, it's a great endeavor. And I think if you think about, you know, in science, we spend millions and billions of dollars to launch rockets, or launch rockets, not launch rockets. I don't know if anybody is sending rockets into space. I mean, I'm sure somebody has, but some of those astronauts go up there, take their personal belongings. One of them's bound to have brought a rocket up there, but we do launch rockets up into space. I've seen Elon Musk building his Starships supposed to take people to Mars, which is insane. And we build telescopes. But we do this to explore space. And the more we see space, the more expansive we see it as. I mean, you consider our Earth, consider our planet that God made with, with a word. Compare that to our sun. Our planet is tiny compared to the sun. Understand the sun 
is a tiny star in a galaxy full of stars. And we're in one galaxy full of galaxies. You understand, there's no way we're ever going to understand all there is to know about space. But why do we keep on studying space? Because the more we study space, the more we are in awe of space. In the same way, the more we study God and who he is, the more we are in awe of his nature and want to worship him and understand how great he is. So the more we study God, the more we understand his mercies are great. You know, we should grow in our knowledge of God. You look in Colossians 1, 9 through 10, Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We are to know our God, who he is and what he's done for us. And that's one reason God's mercy is great. It's simply because he is great. Second reason is because our sin is great. You know, this is, is our sin is great not just because we sin continually. I mean, everybody knows we sin daily. We sin more than once a day. But it's not only great because we constantly sin. It's because we've sinned against a great God. I used to struggle with the idea, how is it that you have to go to hell if you're not saved for an eternity to pay for your sins when... Christ suffered on the cross for a number of hours, and the answer is because Christ is eternal, and he could take on an eternal weight of punishment for us in that time. But an understanding we have sinned against an eternal God, and that the depth of our sin is great, but Christ's mercy is greater than that. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, we read, and you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. For in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all our conversation in times past, and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath he quickened together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy. His mercy is great because it takes a lot of mercy to forgive one of us. I mean, think about it. It would take an eternal amount of mercy to forgive one person if they sinned one time, but that one person sins daily, multiple times a day. How much mercy is that for just one person and then think of all the mercy Christ has shown to the entire world over all the years. And understand God's mercy is great. My family has been singing a song recently by Keith and Kristen Gretty called His Mercy is More. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I will read the first verse and um, chorus because it's beautiful and it really does hit the point home. It says, What well, love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Do not take the mercy of God for granted. He is great, and you have sinned against him greatly. But without his mercy, you would have nothing in this life, and you would have no promise of any eternal blessings. Beyond that, you'd be in hell. But he has shown you his mercy and brought you into a covenant of obedience. So obey him 
embrace him and remember the love that, that, that you owe. If you walk around remembering who you are and understanding you're a pilgrim in this life, but that's only because of the mercy of God, and you let that stay in your mind and you live with it, you will live a life for Christ because you have that always before you. So don't forget God's mercy. Meditate on his greatness. Meditate on his mercy. And let it shape you to be the kind of person he has called you to be. Next, we read that according to his great mercy, he hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This lively or living hope is Christ's raised. And the closer we draw to Christ, the more meaningful the resurrection is going to become to us. Because without that resurrection, we wouldn't have salvation. We would not have this hope. But to think about it, that the hope of all the ages who was thought to be dead after being nailed to the cross was risen and now is alive and alive in us. This is a hope that we should live for. And in Romans 6, 9, we read, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, doth no longer have dominion over him. It's, it's staggering to think that God would come and die for us, but it is something we should rejoice in and realize. He didn't just die, but he rose again. He was the firstborn from the dead. The explanation for that meaning, he is the first to rise to an immortal, immortal body, and we follow him. And it is what gives us hope in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 17. Now, if Christ be preached that rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there be no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also in vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he hath raised Christ, whom he hath not raised. If so be that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are, rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ be not raised, then your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. So if Christ is not raised, if it weren't for that resurrection, we are still in our sins, and we deserve eternal punishment. And you have to stop and think about who's writing this letter and who's thinking about this lively hope of Christ being raised. It's Peter, who, well, he wasn't one of, their, one of the he made people there at the cross. John was at the cross. Peter was not. But he knew Christ to be dead. He had talked with John. Other people had seen it. Peter knew without a doubt Christ was dead. And Peter had been so zealous for Christ and had so much hope in Christ and then Christ is nailed to a cross and stuck in a tomb. And you can imagine the depression Peter feels. But then you can imagine the joy and the hope and how meaningful this is to Peter as he's writing it. That his savior, his friend who he walked with, he heard his voice, he touched him, died and rose again. And because of that, he now understands all the things Jesus had said to him. All the scriptures he had grown up as a Jew reading. He understands it in full. He understands the hope he has in eternity. This would be extremely meaningful to him. And the hope that he has is down in verse 4. He says, To an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. You know, we first, to sum it up, we've been foreknown by the Father and are going under the process of sanctification by the Spirit to obedience by the blood of his Son and all that, as I just stated, made possible by the resurrection of Christ we are given a hope of an eternal inheritance. You know, the, our inheritance is all the promises of God fulfilled, brought together. We are given a new body. We are with Christ. We receive rewards. These are the things that we're going to inherit. And all these things 
are promised to us. But one thing we should know about inheritance is it's not something we earn. Nobody earns their inheritance. Inheritance is something that you have the right to. And it's, we have the right to it because we are now called sons of God. We are not earning this by our own works. Ephesians 2, as we already looked at, said, our salvation is not by works or else we'd boast. And so this is Christ adopting us because he loves us and has had mercy upon us. We read in Romans 8, 15 through 17, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are called children of God. And if children are then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, so that we suffer with him that we may be glorified together. And then in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called sons of God. So having been adopted into the family of God, we didn't deserve it, but we are adopted. We are to receive an inheritance. And Peter is going to tell us four things about our inheritance. The first one is that it is incorruptible or imperishable. The word could literally mean imperishable or immortal. It lasts forever. It's an inheritance that will remain forever and cannot be damaged. It cannot be spoiled. Jesus tells us about the imperishability of this inheritance in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 20. He says, Lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor dust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Our inheritance cannot be corrupted. It cannot be stolen. Everything in this life we have will perish. It's going to break down. It's going to dissolve. It's going to disintegrate or rust, whatever. It will fall away and we'll lose it. But we are strangers and exiles to this life. Everything here really doesn't belong to us. What belongs to us is what is lasting because we are a people who are lasting because Christ has made us his children. We are going to live immortal life in eternity. Next, it is undefiled. The word here it can be described as free from contamination. And this is a specific contamination. It's the contamination of sin. Everything around us in this life, we're going to see sin in. It, you can look at. You go to the store. You look around. You're going to see sin. You watch a movie. I love good stories. I love good film. But sometimes a great story, they can throw something in. And you're like, you did not have to do that. But we see the stains of sin all around us in our art. If you go to the Science Museum in Houston, I love going to science museums. I think they're fascinating. But if you go there, what are you going to do? By each exhibit, you're going to see these little plaques. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're little. And they're going to tell you this evolved randomly 15 million years ago. And they're doing exactly what you see in Romans 1, where they deny God, even though he is evident to them in creation. Instead, they make up myths, and they point you to a pointless worldview that says you're basically nothing. And that is where sin comes from, is they don't want to be held accountable to God. But you go around anywhere, whether it's art and science, sports, music, politics. I, well, is there sin in politics? I could be wrong there. No, but really, everywhere you look, you're going to see sin. You're going to see contamination. But our inheritance is free from contamination. And not only that, it will be pure and righteous. We read in 2 Peter 3.13, Nevertheless, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth where in dwelleth righteousness. Our inheritance is going to be righteous. And finally, our inheritance is unfading. Our inheritance will never fade away. And there are two ways in which something could fade. It can fade in value or appearance. 
Think about when you get a new car, you're super excited about this new car unless it was something that a relative gave to you and it was a piece of junk. But generally, if you go and you buy a nice brand new car, you're gonna be so excited about it and you can't wait to get up to go to work in the morning because you just wanna drive that car even though you've driven that same way 100 times. You're excited about the car, give it a few months when your car smells like french fries and chicken nuggets and is full of old tissues. When you wake up in the morning, you're going to be groaning because the car is now just a place to get from one place to the other and you don't wanna to go to work. The value of stuff fades over time. It's not as exciting anymore. But when you get to heaven, you receive your inheritance, you realize it's going to be exciting forever. You're never going to lose excitement over it. And if anything, you're only going to get more excited over it because you're going to see through eternity how great your God is. I mean, imagine getting to know God through eternity. It will never end. You're just going to continue to see how great he is. You know, another example, I remember going to Florida in 2020 um, before everything got crazy. And uh, we were going to go to the beach. And my dad and I wanted to go run on the beach in the morning. Well, I don't think I really wanted to run, but I wanted to go see the beach. But anyways, we're going to go run along the beach in the morning. And when you, before you could get down to the beach, you actually had to go down to these, through these wooden steps to get to the sand because everything else was kind of elevated. And uh, so you walk, and when we get to the top of the platform where the steps are, you just see the ocean in front of you, and it's massive, and you're just in awe of it. And I remember my dad burst out in prayer because he's more vocal than me. I think I was thinking God in my head. Um, but you're just in awe of this expanse of water in front of you. And then shortly after, once you get down the beach, you're not really in awe of the waves anymore. You're just trying to master them and play in them and you know, tell them that they can't knock you down. But you know, when you first see something that's new or exciting, you're, you're, you're kind of taken back. When we get to heaven, we're going to be taken back by the greatness of it forever. Second way something can fade is an appearance. You know, your shoes or your car, your house or whatever, it's eventually going to fade. It's not going to look as nice and new as it used to. Um, I am about to get a new laptop because mine is broken. Well, it's not broken, but it's on its way there. And it's not near as nice as it used to. One, because now laptops, just the aesthetic of it looks much nicer then, or maybe the aesthetic's just changing, and so I don't think it looks as nice anymore. But there's grease stains on it, there's dirt in between the keys, and it just, it's fading in its function. Everything on this earth is gonna fade to one degree or another, but our inheritance won't fade. It's always going to be as great and as abundant as it was when we received, when we received it. And you know, our bodies are gonna fade too. They're gonna fade away. And uh, you know, people pressure, you know, while you're young, do all the stuff you want. Um, but we have to remember, we don't belong here. And even though, if, if you're young, um, you may be able to do all the fun stuff now. You should be using your time when you're young to serve Christ. During the reign of Mary, Queen of England, it was also known as Bloody Mary because she persecuted the Protestant church a young man was condemned to die for his faith. One of his friends pleaded with him, saying, Take pity on thy golden years and pleasant flowers of youth before it be too late. The young man's reply was, Sir, I long for those flowers which will never fade away. He longed for what lasted in eternity. And though he was young and had a lot, lot more life to live according to his world, world standards, he knew he was just a stranger on this life. And he longed for what lay after this life. And it meant giving up any time on this earth. For Christ's sake, he knew it was worth it. So everything in this life is going to fade away in one form or another. But our excitement and our joy should be for eternity. Because once we get there, 
whatever it be, whether it's in appearance or in value to us, it's not going to fade. It is going to be spectacular and awesome and beyond anything we could ask or think of. Finally, it is reserved in heaven. It is kept by God. Peter tells us God is keeping us inheritance, so we know we cannot lose this inheritance because he has it for us. In John 14, verses 2 through 3, we read, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. We have this inheritance kept by God. And in case you didn't know, nobody can steal anything from God, especially if it's in heaven. And so what does this mean for us? It means we have hope of something better. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, Hetty Green may have been the biggest miser who ever lived. Her father died when she was 30, leaving her an inheritance of more than $100 million in today's money. Though it was unusual for a woman to be involved with banking and investments at the time, she concentrated all her efforts and attention on growing the family fortune. Hetty Green worked her life away to build up a perishable inheritance that she would, was only guaranteed to lose, just like her father. Christians, however, have an inheritance that cannot fade away, it cannot corrupt, and one they will never lose. You may face loss in this life, but remember, you don't belong to this life. One thing that you will never lose is your inheritance. So keep your focus on God. And one day you will obtain it, and when you obtain that inheritance, you will never lose it. Next, I want you to see what Peter says. He says, And that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, talking about your inheritance, which is reserved for us, and he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, I think most of us, if not all of us, believe that once you're saved, you are always saved. Scripture teaches us you cannot lose your salvation. And Peter is teaching that our inheritance is kept for us, and God is not going to keep something for someone who might not be there to receive it. You're going to keep, well, God is going to keep your salvation and that's what the Bible teaches. We cannot lose it. And the reason we won't lose it is not because we're strong enough to keep it by ourselves, but because God keeps it through faith he has given to us. That's what Peter said. He says we're kept by the power of God through faith. More about why we cannot lose our salvation. We say it a lot, but I think it'd be good to touch on it. John six thirty nine, And this is the Father's will, which he hath set, sent me that all of which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Christ will not lose any believer. John 8, 10, 28-29, And I gave unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. No one can steal away the soul of a believer, not even yourself. And then this is a very powerful verse. It's from Jude. You know, if you're ever looking for Jude, I heard Alistair Begg say, he says, if you want to find Jude, go to the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible, and then take a left turn. <laughs> but in Jude, verses 20 through 4 through 25 of the only chapter, he says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, both now and forever. Amen. Through these verses, we see that God has a promise to keep his believers. And he has a purpose in it. And Peter says that God keeps them for salvation, which will be fully revealed in the last time. 
But specifically notice our salvation is kept by faith. God keeps our salvation through faith. And I think, you know, there is a good example of how this works in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 24, if you want to turn there. It says, And it came to pass to his disciples that he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with him? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples, and they should not cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer with you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when they saw him, straightway the spirit tear at him, and he fell down on the ground, and wallowed and foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. You know, just because we have faith as Christians does not mean we won't struggle with doubt. However, the Christian is going to be strengthened by God who will keep them saved and who will provide them with every faith, every bit of faith they need to face whatever doubt is thrown at them in their life. Personally, I've suffered with a lot of doubt. Specifically, when I was younger, I would suffer with doubting my salvation. Am I really saved? Yet, God would always give me the faith to overcome those doubts and to continue in my walk with him and know that those doubts were just doubts. And no matter what amount of doubt you may suffer, if you are truly saved, God will provide you the faith to overcome those doubts. And you will stay a believer in Christ forever until the end. You know, this doctrine, we talked about the living hope, the hope of resurrection is meaningful to Peter. This doctrine of, of being able to have confidence that you will never lose your salvation had to be specifically encouraging to Peter because you know, he had been so zealous for Christ and yet he ended up denying him three times. However, we read that Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fall in Luke 22, 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt deny, thrice deny that thou knowest me. You know, in the same way, that Christ prayed for Peter. Even though Peter failed, Christ paid, prayed that his faith ultimately would not fail. And we read in the book of Hebrews that Christ does the same for us. It says, Wherefore, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by faith, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You know, it should comfort you that the same God who prayed for Peter who, to endure is right now interceding for you that your faith won't fall. And because of that, you can have confidence that you will one day receive the inheritance he's promised. And he says he's able to save to the uttermost. He intercedes so he can save them to the uttermost. This uttermost 
the Greek means all complete or entire or perfect. A salvation that did not end in glory would not be complete, would not be entire or perfect. Only a salvation that ends in glory is going to be complete. And we read in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he which have begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. The work of salvation that Christ gave to us, he will make sure is completed. No one is able to snatch us out of Christ's hand, and he will give us the strength and faith to continue until the last day. But, you know, some people are going to protest and say, well, you can lose your salvation. I mean, I, I've, seen, I've seen people who come into church and who walk away, and they're, they're no longer saved. John, in his first letter, describes those people. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they are all not of us. He says, he does not say, they went out because they were of us, but they, you know, decided they want to do something else. So he did not say, they might have continued with us. He says, no, they would have no doubt continued with us. And the reason they went out from us is because they were not of us. So people who appear to be saved but walk away from Christ were never originally of the faith. They may have believed with a head knowledge. We know we read it in James. He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. You can believe with a head knowledge, but unless you believe in your heart, you will not, you're not genuinely saved. And you may come to church and have a ho-hum faith saying, okay, this is true. And you go out and you face compromise and you fall into it. If you do not truly believe with your heart, you're going to fall away from Christ. Um, another example of why I am, I believe so confidently you cannot fall away and that those who have fallen away were never saved is in Matthew 7, 21, 23. Christ talks about in the end, and judgment. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, if you could become saved and then lose your salvation, he would not be able to say, I never knew you. Maybe with some he would, but with others, he would say, well, I knew you for a time, but, you know, you turned around and rejected me. Your rejection of Christ is when you were presented with salvation. Did you accept it or did you walk away? If you accepted it, God is going to give you the strength to continue in that faith. But if you do not believe it, in your heart, Christ never knew you and you never knew him. And on that day, he is going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I think we need, we need to do as Paul says, because it's clear that some do claim to know Christ who don't really. Paul says, examine yourselves to make sure you are in the faith. Do you believe with a head knowledge? Do you believe these things as, okay, these are facts I've always heard all my life? Or do you believe this, I know this to be true. I know this to be the word of God. What is in it is inerrant, it's divine, and because it's true, it should have impact on my life. If you have a heart felt belief. In scripture, it will be manifested in obedience to Christ. Finally, we look down. You know, our faith is being kept by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed in a salvation the last time, 
And he says, we're in, in verse 6, he greatly rejoice. We rejoice in this salvation, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. Notice the wording here. He says, though now for a season, for a time, if need be, you're in heaviness or grieved through manifold or many temptations. Trials are a part of the believer's life. And part of it is to remind them you don't belong to this world. You're strangers in this world. However, the interesting thing about trials is Peter is bringing them up to add on to the fact that you will not lose your salvation. Peter says these trials prove our faith. His point is that trials will further prove the genuineness of salvation. He goes on to say, The trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the, glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Our salvation through faith is like gold. It's precious. And in order to find out is gold genuine or not, it would be tried. And he says the trials are trying your faith like gold. He says there's, there's an interesting thing, though. It says our faith is more precious than gold. So he's saying it's tried like gold, but it's more precious than gold. And, you know, Josiah read in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. I was going to read that as well. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God uses the trials in your life to produce character in you. And this character proves that you truly believe what you say you believe. And Romans 5, 3 through 5 we read, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing also that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And we cannot lose this, but the trial of our faith proves it is legitimate. And it is so precious, Matthew 16, 26. For what is it man profited if he shall gain the whole world and yet loseth his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Our faith is precious, and we should count the trials we face as precious. We should face them with joy, because as we go through them, they prove to us, yes, we are truly saved. If you want to have confidence that you truly are saved, and you know, some, of the, some of the confidence I've grown through the years where I do not doubt my salvation anymore is the fact I've had to face things. I've had to face when compromise is thrown at me or when hard things are thrown at me. I go to God's word and I lift it out. And as I see that my faith is real because Christ is working in me, I have confidence I'm truly saved. And Peter is saying the same thing. These trials prove your faith. You know, someone might say, well, he's talking about, you can lose your salvation. He's talking about proving the strength of something. You know, actually the picture is ruined if you say that. When gold is tried, you melt it down. You basically destroy it in order to prove what is genuine. Everything that's fake is going to be removed later on. You know, as Christians, when we go through trial, we're broken down. The only strength is the substance that Christ has given us, which is the precious faith. That's the picture we have here. It's not the strength of anything that is being proven here. It's the genuineness. That's what Peter's getting after. And in the end, it says, 
though our faith be tested by fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the, glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The praise and honor and glory Peter brings here, though we give praise and honor and glory to Christ, is actually the glorification of a believer. Because we have promised that we don't deserve it, we will one day be glorified. And it kind of is hard for me to wrap my head around that because I know I don't deserve any kind of glory. And in the end, Christ will receive glory through our glory, but we are promised glory. And in our salvation, when it is fully revealed, we will receive that glory. In Romans 8, 29-30, it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. We are promised to receive glory because of God's great mercy. So you can have complete confidence, no matter what you go through, no matter how many doubts you faith, that God will finish his work in you. And he will grant you an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, well, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he's kept for you. You know, God has called us out of this world. He's called us to not be a part of this world. At my store, one of our brands of shirts or stickers or whatever we sell, and one of them is not of this world. You'll see it every now and then on the back of a car as a sticker, N-O-T-W. It's kind of got this crazy looking font. But it stands for not of this world. We are not of this world. We're of this inheritance Peter has described. And later on in the same chapter, he ends up saying, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Back to that lady, Helen, who came to my store. I talked to her for a while. I don't know, it could have gone one ear out the other, but I was thankful that I had studied this because she was hoping in this life and I was able to bring her to this passage and tell her, you know, you're promised trials in this life. You're promised to f- struggle. But you are also promised, if you are saved, an inheritance that will last forever. So I told her to set her hope on that and have faith in that. And as Christians, we need to as well. Because if we are constantly remembering who we are and where our hope is, if we are looking to that hope, our perspective is going to be right and it will compel us to live the life God has called us to be. So... My call here is to look to Christ and look to what he's promised you and look to him through his word. You know, you're not going to find Christ by going to a conference or by listening to tons of sermons. Though those do benefit if if they are good. You will hear good preaching. You will benefit from the teaching. But you're going to find Christ by day by day going to the Word, spending time in it, and growing in knowledge. You can come to church, and you can hear a sermon, but you're going to forget most of what you heard. Usually people walk away only remembering one or two main things. But if you go to church and you hear the sermon, and you go home and you study your Word, those truths will become more and more evident to you, and you will find your God, and you will find the hope that he is going to bring you in the end, or the hope that you should have in what he will give you in the end. So... That is it for now. Um, I think I went a little bit over time, but that's fine because I thought I was going to go under.